so the context just for for everyone that's that's on and um we'll definitely make this uh conversational and dynamic so would love for people to to uh, raise their hands and, and call in here um but the context was <clears throat> basically about a week ago i think um i put out a piece of writing about um i called it non-obvious habits of of uh of winners but basically like um, or non-obvious traits of winners. And, and basically the whole idea was like some of the things that stuck out to me and my experience um, with high-performing people in general, you know, across fields, sports, investors, operators, athletes, et cetera, um, some of the traits that stick out, some of the habits that stick out. And a few of them in particular I wanted to talk about in greater length, <clears throat> um, largely because I think they – there is a layer below what I was able to get into that I think is much more challenging to uh, deconstruct. And so I thought it would be really interesting to have uh, Romain and to have Dan um, come on, join, and um, and try to unpack that a little bit more. So that's the general context. We will um, we'll take callers throughout, probably try to keep it to about 30 minutes. No, it's a Thursday evening and, and folks want to get back to uh, <clears throat> get back to their lives and families. But um, maybe with that, why don't we uh why don't we kick off Romain? Um so so the first one that I want to talk about is uh it was the first one that was in the piece of writing and it was this concept of being an expert advice filter. And so so what did I mean mm-hmm. by that maybe just as a starting point? It's like this general concept that you're going to get a ton of advice along the way. Like as you progress in your endeavors, there's always going to be, you know, a bunch of people who are giving you advice. Most of it is well-intentioned. Most people are giving you advice because they're genuinely trying to help. But for whatever reason, most advice you get is also complete trash and not relevant and won't be particularly helpful if you apply it. And so one thing I've noticed in talking with a lot of interesting and smart and people that I consider highly successful is that they have become uh, extremely adept advice filters. And I just mean by that, that they are they have very effective mechanisms for uh, filtering through all the noise of the advice that they might get and deciding um, and having kind of frameworks in place for deciding which pieces of advice to take and apply and which pieces of advice to throw away. Um, so maybe with that as context, Romine, I'd be curious for your perspectives on this and, uh, and your general thoughts at the outset. Yeah. I, so I think it's a really good insight or observation you're making. Um, and I think it actually become more and more prescient and more and more pressing, um, given how easy it is to get advice these days. And I, it's, and it's not just getting advice from other individuals. I think it's getting advice you know, kind of in passive form from what you read online, right? And there's so much content, there's so much knowledge that's out there. I I think the way you framed it in terms of kind of most advice being trash is correct. I'd give a nuance to that, which is I actually think most advice is pretty good or probably not that bad, but I think most of it is context. Uh, it's lacking context, right? And so for me, I think a couple, a couple of frameworks or a couple of tools that I've always used, you know, from a personal perspective, I've always asked myself that whenever I get advice from folks, and it's great to get advice, ask a lot of people, et cetera, but you always have to be anchored into what is it that you are ultimately solving for, right? And so, you know, at McKinsey, one of the things I would get, you know, let's say I got career advice or so, a filter, you know, a quick kind of check or a quick tool I had in the back of my head was, you know, do I want to be that person? Is what that person is doing in their career, in their lifestyle, whatever it might be, is that something that looks exciting to me, you know, 
positive to me, et cetera, in the next five years, in the next 10 years. So let me, yeah, go ahead. Let me pause you on that one. So I think this is interesting. And the pushback that I have to this and why I think it is sometimes less effective than it would otherwise be is that if the person is giving you that advice, so, so assume that is true. Assume that person X is giving you that advice Mm-hmm. And they are where you want to be. Mm-hmm. But if they did the thing in a totally different environment, say it was earlier than you, you know, several years, say the market has completely changed, that yep. good advice, which might actually be good advice, could be bad. Um, yep. And like I've heard this from founders, you know, like the CEO of some multi-billion dollar company gives them advice. He, you know, he or she is the CEO of a high flying startup and is getting advice from, you know, a very successful unicorn founder who has very recently done something. Um, But the advice is just different because circumstances on the ground have changed. And so the actual application of the advice might be less effective than you would otherwise think. So I'm curious for your thoughts, you know, kind of on that general pushback. Yep. So I'd bifurcate it into two. So I think there's personal advice, right, where you're saying, you know, maybe you're thinking about your career, maybe you're thinking about your lifestyle, whatever it might be. And then there's business advice, right? And and the two can get conflated, right? Like if you're talking to somebody about where do you want to be in your career, there's always a there's a personal element to that. And then there's a, you know, quote unquote, business element to that, there can be advice that you get in your startup, which is, it can be personal advice on how you want to run a company, and then it can be actual substantive business advice. So I think I think what you have to do is you have to you have to be grounded in the reality of you, right? From a personal perspective, you have to be grounded in what do you want out of your life, and from a business perspective, if you're operating a business or whatever role you're in, you need to be grounded in the reality of what's going on in that current situation. Um, if you start with that kind of grounding right, then this filtering mechanism automatically comes, right? So, you know, when you're running a company, for example, let's say you have a board, right? The board can provide really thoughtful perspective, you know, from the vantage point that maybe they've sat on alternative, bo- uh, you know, additional boards, you know, they they have a vantage point on, on the business model, whatever it might be. But the same, you know, trap can come, Sahil, exactly as you laid out, which is, you know, they're meeting you four times a year, maybe six times a year, Right. And so you as the operator of the business are actually in the arena, have a way better sense of all the context and all the details. And so, you know, being able to filter out advice is as much of a skill of hearing and listening to what other people are sharing as it is about having self-awareness and self-confidence in yourself. I think it's really easy to fall into the advice of other people, uh, even if you have better context when you are not as self-aware or maybe you are not as self-confident. I've definitely done that in my career a ton, right? Which is you're unsure of yourself or you're unsure of an answer. And so the easy thing to do is to say, you know, hey, this person is more advanced or maybe they're smarter or maybe they have a different perspective. I'm going to hear what they say. And, you know, because they said it, you know, they must be right. And I'm just going to kind of blindly follow that along. I think the only way you get out of that trap is you start having heuristics for yourself. And the heuristics have to come down to either something substantive where you know more context and you more you know more information. So the advice is not don't go solicit input. It's just that you need to layer that input against other facts that you know the other folks are not aware of that you're aware of. Or from a personal perspective, I think it's you can go solicit advice, you can go get feedback perspective, but you have to understand what your north star is and what kind of life you're trying to live, right? And and the right answer, there is no right answer, right? There's an answer that's it's kind of like personal finance, right? I think somebody put this really well on on Twitter at one point, which was, you know, if you look at kind of folks that argue about stocks or CNBC, you know, on CNBC or so on and so forth, 
is basically two people that are probably right. It's just the subtle thing that they're not mentioning is that they're looking at different time frames, right? And I, I think that goes a lot in, hand in hand with advice, which is you have to filter out advice, which is what is right for you ultimately. And there's no thing. The trickiest thing about that is there's no right or wrong answer. And the only way that you get to what's right for you is you actually have the self-confidence to say, you know, this is what is right for me. So a lot of great points there. Um, Dan Held is now with us up on stage. Dan, curious, uh, general topic, as you probably uh, surmised, is around how to figure out what advice to accept versus reject as you kind of progress in your career in life. So curious what your experience has been with this and how you've managed to filter through the, you know, walls of bad advice to figure out what makes sense. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's funny because, you know, when you're younger, you don't have a lot of information. And so you have to kind of appeal to authority and take whatever information you have at the time and apply that to what little mental models you have and and understanding the world. But as you get older, you've received different types of advice from different people over time. And, uh, oh, Romine, do you want to go on mute, by the way? Picking up a little bit of background noise. Um, you know, as as you progress in life, you start to get more and more advice from different people, whether it be friends, family, coworkers, uh, your manager, et cetera, or online, you read a blog post. And so the way I think about it is a couple different perspectives. One is building out a framework to ingest and evaluate ideas. So... I think there's when you look at information and you look at different case studies or other mental models, those are built to solve different problems or solve different you know uh, experiences that people have. So when it comes to your experience, it's very unlikely that there's been a case study or an example that matches one-to-one exactly with what you're going through. And so you need to have a good framework or, or mental models that you've developed which are sort of like your, your platform to ingest, parse, and analyze ideas, and then have those change kind of like your core framework for parsing new information and thinking through how to react to new information. So what I'm trying to say is like the, the base framework I've developed is more of how do I react to things rather than like, here's a cookie cutter approach to XYZ problem. It's like, okay, there's mental models of like, how does product work? How do, what does good product thinking look like? What is, what, what do, how do humans react to certain sort of environmental things or how do people react to certain situations and use those? And also like measuring my own like emotional output, right? Like if I'm reacting emotionally to a circumstance or I'm feeling that emotion, it's recognizing that emotion and, and wondering what that emotion, why am I, I'm, why am I eliciting that, eliciting that emotion right now? And the other framework I have for this too is more of a growth mindset. And that's my backgrounds in growth product, growth marketing, is a little bit of the experimentation framework. You know, sometimes you just have to go try different things and see what happens. And and it's through that failure, you know, when when people approach experimentation within a growth mindset on growth like growth product and growth marketing, it's not about being right. It's about learning. It's about learning from either success or a failure. And that's where you enter something with a hypothesis where let's have a simple example here. I want to change out a home page call to action button, the sign up button. Should it be blue or should it be green? Well, I come in with a hypothesis where I think that blue might be a better color for the button. We test the hypothesis. Whether or not it wins is, is sort of irrelevant. It's more of the fact that I was able to keep uh, 
my mind and experimentation mindset where we were trying to stay as objective as possible, see what the result was, and then learn from that result. And so applying that experimentation or growth mindset, I think, is really critical for new ideas and, and new approaches to solving problems. So what I'm hearing a lot from both of you guys that I think is <clears throat> sort of an interesting common thread is just this idea of um, basically rejecting advice as like a panacea. I, you know, I, I, for a long time, I would have said I just like relied on advice as a cure-all. Like you just take the advice, you paste it onto your life and then go about your business and, and move on. And what I'm hearing a lot, you know, in kind of different ways is basically just that advice has to be um, sort of viewed in combination with your own independent thought. And it sounds obvious, but it's actually an interesting nuance. It's sort of like, um, this is a silly example, but you know, when you go to, uh, like an optometrist to get your eyes checked and they have that machine that you sit in front of and you're kind of looking through it and then they overlay a lens on top of it. Like you're still looking with your own eyes and having your own individual experience, but you're overlaying a new lens onto it that kind of changes and hopefully clarifies the experience of what you're seeing in front of you. Um, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it right now. Like as an analogy, it's a funny analogy, but that's um, that's I feel like at least what I'm hearing from you guys. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I mean, I think the only way that you like if you further that analogy, I think the only way you clarify is you clarify through reps and experience. Right. Um and and interactions right so if you you know if you don't have reps and experience and this is kind of the analogy also of like you know you can read about business or you can read about something you may want to do uh, but unless you're in the arena and you're actually doing it you're not going to pick up kind of those heuristics i was talking about earlier which actually are very effective filtering mechanisms it you know it's it enough folks that know what they're talking about, which let's assume that, you know, there's always positive intent in folks that are giving advice. You know, the folks that you're soliciting advice from probably know what they're talking about. They probably have some reality in which they've grounded that advice. And so if you don't have any heuristic or any ability to ground yourself or have a filter, it's really hard to actually find the counterfactual to it, right? It's really easy to say, well, you know, this makes a ton of sense. Uh, and so I should follow that along. And th those can be the precise situations in which you get yourself in a lot of trouble. And I think, you know, too, there's, it, it's it's really tough when you look at like, well, what is the foundation of truth? Like, what is, what can I rely on as my like source of truth for building out my mental models and, and how you perceive the world? It's pretty tricky because um, there's all sorts of these circumstances where you took like best advice and applied it and sometimes it didn't work. But I do think there are some like, you know, primitives when it comes to thinking through uh, these problems. Like, for example, let's come up with a very fundamental primitive physics, right? You know, physics are, is a fundamental primitive where <laughs> if someone tries to sell you a machine that creates more energy that is, than is put into it, then you can obviously reject that and be like that, <laughs> that violates like the laws of physics. Um, similarly, I mean, that's what people did with, uh, I don't know if you guys have been watching the documentary on um, Bad Blood. It was the Bad Blood book turned into a documentary on um, the dropout. Yeah, the dropout. Yeah. And so, I mean, her machines fundamentally violated some physics based, you know, parameters where, you know, that's a very easy primitive mental model to have is like the laws of thermodynamics. So, and that, that applied to like Theranos' testing capabilities was just a, it's almost a physics issue. So, you know, some of that can be like some of your basic frameworks too, of like the, like the root core foundation of truth. 
And then also just like kind of basic human assumptions, like Charlie Munger talks about this and he says, all humans respond to incentives. Sounds really basic, but a lot of people, (laughs) a lot of people keep making decisions or assume that humans will not act in their best interest and they almost always will. And so, you know, some of these like very primitive things are some sources of truth you can build up this foundation upon. I love that. That's really well said. Um, so just shifting gears a little bit, the other, um, the, the kind of the second main one that I thought popped up in my writing that I really wanted to talk to you guys about is the idea of compartmentalization. Um, and this is, I don't know. I mean, this is common across, I would say all classes of, of, um, top performers, you know, like athletes are notorious for this being able to kind of, uh, focus on the, you know, the swing or the pitch or the play or whatever it is at hand and kind of put the past in the past and not think about the future, et cetera. Um, but it applies to business just as much as, you know, like being able to switch gears and, and flip on and flip off. So cu- curious for your guys' experience with this, how you honed it as a skill or trait, or if you struggle with it, um, and full disclosure, this is something I struggle with a lot. Um, I just generally feel like I have a tough time shutting off one side of my brain uh, when I go into a new task. So I'm curious, you know, even just for my own selfish, uh, selfish reasons about what you've done that works in this regard. I guess I can go first. So this is around uh, kind of switching tasks or switching between uh, different projects. Yeah. Being able to like, you know, deeply focus on only one thing and shutting off the other areas, you know, basically like just focus on the exact one thing that's there and forget about the fact that you were working on something else before that someone's bugging you, et cetera. I don't think I've solved that very well. So I'm probably not the right person to ask (laughs) about that. I mean, it's, it's a perpetual problem, especially, and, you know, both of you understand this issue too. When you've got a big social media presence, the whole world is ready to talk to you at any moment. And so there's kind of this really bad habit that's built with like checking notifications or engaging in conversation because you're on this, you're on this platform and there's, you know, half a million people half a million people, like for, for example, on Twitter, I've got 560,000 people who are willing to talk to me at any given moment and who are actively responding to my tweets that I previously posted in the day. So like, that's a pretty big persistent distraction in the background. So for folks who have like a social media uh, kind of brand or like a big brand on social media, it's really tricky to kind of switch that off. And I've, I've tried some things and I'm actively doing some things to to disconnect myself from that so I can focus more on, on work and other things. Um, and then of course, like with Slack, <laughs> it's just really damn hard to uh, not get pulled into things because, uh, you know, I'm not super senior. I'm just a director level, but you know, there's, there's all sorts of like random fires where I need to respond within maybe like 15 minutes or something to solve a problem. So I can't like turn my Slack notifications off. And then I typically have like eight or nine back-to-back meetings a day. Um, and so it's like, Sometimes I find myself in some of the meetings that aren't as, you know, I'm not one of the key stakeholders in it. Um, I just need to be present. I just need to be there. You know, I'm doing work in the meantime. So I don't have a good solution for multitasking. Uh, it's something that I would be actually be very curious about how you all solve. I've read a bunch of stuff about it. You know, I've read about compartmentalization or where you like block off time to do certain things. I've just been really bad about it. And I just kind of like go with, go with the flow now versus trying to like, create time. Uh, but be curious how you guys do that. 
Yeah, I think I'm in the same camp, honestly, uh, as, as Dan and Sal. Maybe you or maybe you can teach us. Uh, I, I feel like I, I struggle definitely with this as well. Um, and and I think there's like this this arc more and more, right, which is, you know, running kind of multiple projects, multiple businesses, whatever it might be. That's that's one way to think about it. Or, you know, when you you know, when you run a business, it gets to some scale. There's a lot of mini kind of stuff that goes on inside a business. And so I think it's um, the, the North Star that I've used is I've tried to use some sort of impact framework. Um, I, I think it's really easy to focus on tasks at hand or getting things done. I had had Des Trainer from Intercom on my podcast a while ago, and he had this really good framing, which was, I'm going to butcher it, but it was something to the tune of, you know, email is what other people want you to do. Your to-do list is what you think you want to do. And your calendar is what you actually do. Um, And that actually got me a lot more in the zone of focusing on the structure of my calendar and the color coding of my calendar. And it sounds really silly or really um, menial, but that's actually given me a really nice way on a weekly basis, you know, to see where am I allocating my time Um, and just a snapshot. Right. And so like in our business, for example, you know, I'll put, you know, red on the calendar for, you know, talking with customers or prospects or whatever it is. And if I don't have a particular week that has enough red on it, you know, it's just a heuristic for me to say, you know, do I have kind of my sense of the market that week? Right. Um, Or if I'm working deeply, you know, on some content or, you know, on something on an investment, whatever it might be. And I've color coded that as, you know, green and blue, you know, if I haven't dedicated enough time to it, you know, I kind of, question for myself, hey, am I, you know, giving the appropriate time to think through this investment that I'm about to make? Or is the content that I'm about to produce, you know, as quality as it could be, right? Um, and so I I use, I try to stick to my calendar very intentionally. I try to put, you know, what I'm going to do for the day. I actually like schedule out the blocks on the day. And, it, you know, it's not like a, a specific invite or specific calendar event for every single thing I need to do. But, you know, I have blocks and then I put in those blocks, you know, what are the things that I try to accomplish? I try to actually, you know, when Des had told me that, I try to stick to that framework as much as possible, which is taking it off of to-do list and actually making it actionable and, and sticking to my calendar and being honest with myself on how much I stick to it. And really using email, I think, Dan, the analogy you framed is, or the way you explained it, I think is exactly right. That's kind of how the way I think about email, which is email is like your most unprotected um space, right? Nobody has any context what's going on in your life in your day when they're pushing an email, right? And so it's fully up to you how you react on receiving an email, receiving a DM, receiving a reply to a tweet, whatever it might be, you know, nobody has that context. And so as you get either bigger social following or you have more projects that you're doing or your business is getting larger or whatever it is, I think you actually have to have the skill set to be more inward um and and get comfortable saying no a lot more frequently and a lot, a lot more often. Uh, Sahil, you and I have talked about this online, uh, offline before, but you know, there was a point in time where I was saying yes to like everything, right? In our business, in content, in investing and in taking meetings, et cetera. Um, and you have to have a good sense of how you can dial that down and actually start saying no a lot more frequently than yes, uh, because the amount of time you have doesn't change, uh, but the value per time or the value per that unit of time significantly changes. Yeah, I think what you hit on, I mean, I call it an energy audit, which I learned from a friend of mine, uh, this guy, Kurt Lynn, who's the CEO of a business called Pinwheel. 
It's like a high flying payroll API business. Um, and he was the one that gave me the name of it, but basically this idea that like at the end of a given day or at the end of a given week, going back to your calendar and identifying, um, you know, and actually physically color coding, which activities gave you, gave you energy, you know, were kind of neutral or drained energy. Um, and it gives you a very real and, um, kind of tangible way of evaluating, you know, what are the things that you need to be prioritizing, i.e. the energy creating activities and what are the things you need to be saying no to or outsourcing, i.e. the energy draining activities. And it's a bit of a luxury, which I will fully acknowledge to be able to do that. Like in my prior role at my prior firm, there's no way I could have done that. Like the things that I found energy draining were too essential and core to my job, but in the aggregate, that also gives you a sign and an indication that maybe it's not the right fit for you from a long-term standpoint to be kind of continuing to drudge away in that type of position or role. But but I've found that color coding, like simple exercise around color coding to be really, really effective. And then to your point, Romain, on, um, you know, on saying no to things, this is something that, as you mentioned, you and I have chatted about. It's something I've struggled with uh pretty mightily and i think dan was the one that said it um just that like if you're you know kind of scaling your presence on social media it's just constant drip of um people reaching out dopamine you know all of the kind of pluses and minuses that come with all of that that you start to contend with like at one point my cell phone number somehow got out there and i was getting 200 text messages a day or um, you know, lots of people reaching out by email, et cetera. And it's very, I mean, it's impossible at some point to respond to everything. It's definitely impossible to say yes to everything. And in the velocity that I would have previously done that, it would have been, um, completely debilitating, frankly, in terms of my ability to get anything else real done. And so I, I think there's like a separation that needs to happen in your mind between saying yes and being, um, and being like a nice person, I had always thought that saying yes was essential to um, my own self-identification as someone that was kind and nice. Um, and that's a real challenge. And that was that was a real challenge for me. And it continues to be a real challenge because I feel uh, I feel like a jerk sometimes when I say no yeah. to things. And that's like a mental barrier to get over. Totally. It's it's, um, you know, a calendar is a like a, you know, it's it's the mapping of like your actual time. I mean, that's the only scarce thing you really have here is more time. And so, um, for me, I, I, I laugh cause like there's some of my friends who are on my level, uh, in terms of like kind of work ethic to where I send them a, like, they'll send me a calendar invite and I'm like, hell yeah, for like a personal thing. Right. <laughs> or like, let's go to brunch and, and we send a Cal invite because I got to get on. If it's not on the calendar, I'm going to forget for sure. So the calendar is like my source of truth for how I allocate time. Um, and I'm pretty, pretty defensive with my calendar to where, you know, if people put meetings on it, like I might suggest a 15 minute one versus 30, like since Google calendar is default settings are like 30 minutes. Most people do that. And I'm like, Hey, can we do this in five or 15? Um, or like, I'll be pretty aggressive on punting things to like another time. If like things are getting too throttled or too tight. And then I've worked with like my EA on like blocking off certain times where like she's inserted like fake lunches during the middle of my day. Cause I wasn't doing that. And I was just going like nonstop for like seven hours in, into meetings. So, you know, there are some like defensive strategies there to like defend your time and kind of punt. What is an, is an important cut it down. So I'm pretty ruthless with like time gating or like I'll go audit my cross team meetings and then see which ones my team leads can go into versus myself. Um, so it, 
it's a pretty ruthless sort of like prioritization framework for time management. Look, I'm not going to go pretend though that I don't do all this and then I go play two hours of Xbox on occasion, right? <laughs> so, so <laughs> you know, I'm not like a machine that's perfect at doing this, but general general directional, you know, dire directionally, this is how I like to optimize my time. And then, you know, when it comes to people reaching out, I mean, Sahil, you like you must be getting blown up too, like I am, and and Ramin, um, you know, it's it's uh. At first, I replied to everyone because I, I didn't want to be rude. And and then the, there's so many D DMs and so many emails that over time, I just stopped replying because I, I then kind of felt bad when I rejected people too, where I'm like, well, is it better just to like, basically they assume you're too busy uh, versus like you replying and saying you're too busy and they're not important enough for you. With one circumstance, they believe that their email or message got lost. The other one, you actually reject them, which is, I think, a little harsher. So I've, I now just don't reply to stuff that, you know, I, that doesn't warrant my attention. Yeah. The one other thing that I would leave people with, and I, I agree with, with everything you said, Dan, um, the one other thing I would leave people with before we sign off is just the general idea of like not fearing unstructured time. This is something that's new for me. Um, I had always been in the mold. I'm like very type A, somewhat OCD, probably mild OCD. And um, what it meant for me from a calendar perspective was that I always wanted every single minute of time to be blocked for something. And so I would like, you know, color code and I'd have every minute was like something, okay, I'm going to do this. Then there's gonna be a 10 minute walk. And then there's gonna be, you know, it was like my whole calendar was filled with blocks of time. And um, what I've now done is almost swung to the other end of the spectrum, where I'm a big, big believer in having pure, unfilled, unstructured time on my calendar. And I sort of let, you know, day to day uh, uh, energy guide what I end up going and spending time on during those blocks. And what what I found is that it works really, really well for um like kind of following your creative instincts around things um, and has been a big unlock. I don't think it would work well in a highly structured um, setting. Like in my prior job, it definitely wouldn't have worked well because I needed to know what I was doing at all times and that there were different things that I was progressing against. But for more creative work, if you're in a creative role or if uh, being creative is a key part of your workflows, um, it's certainly something to consider and, and something to potentially prioritize. Um, so, Guys, thank you so much. I know we are uh, we're up against. I promised that we would uh, that we would let people go back to their families um, at six thirty. Re really appreciate everyone joining. Um, as always, Dan, Romine, you guys are amazing, and uh, look forward to seeing everyone next week. I'm going to start doing these at the same time, ideally every single week, um, six p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. Um, going to be bringing on guests and uh, and chatting about interesting topics, hopefully. So thank you, Romine. Thank you, Dan. You guys are awesome. And look forward to seeing everyone next week. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Guys. Cheers.